these two biomarkers, exhaled nitric oxide and blood eosinophils, are by some way the strongest predictors of risk of exacerbations. You are listening to Treatable Traits on Asthma. This series is intended for healthcare professionals that are interested in being updated within asthma. You will be updated according to available science and the speaker's clinical experiences. Take time to subscribe for this podcast on the channel you're using so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to this episode's Treatable Traits, where we are looking into assessments and different biomarkers. My name is Professor Vibeke Bagger. I'm professor at the main university hospital, Rigshospitalet, Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. With me, I have Professor Ian Pavor from UK and Professor Peter Gibson from Australia. Let me start asking you, Peter, how do you diagnose asthma? Yeah, thanks, Vibeke. So my approach, uh, I take a patient's history and look for key factors that might clue me into the possibility of asthma. I move to objective testing. And what I want from the objective testing is to say what treatable traits are present, what pulmonary traits are present in, in the first instance. When So the traits that I'm interested in are airflow obstruction. So you, I would use spirometry and markers of T2 inflammation. So that will be a bloody eosinophil count and exhaled nitric oxide. And I have to recognize that those those things can vary over time. And because the blood cell count is so accessible and frequently measured, you can often go into past records and find uh, evidence of prior raised eosinophils. So I use that those those methods to identify does this person have T2 inflammation? That will suffice nearly always. But sometimes it, things will still be unclear. So, for example, if a person had normal spirometry, uh, but I thought the history was consistent with asthma, then I'd go looking for measures of variable airflow obstruction. And they could be uh, peak flow variability or bronchial provocation. So if I hear you well, you say that asthma is a diagnosis based on symptoms? And then the testing due to the treatable traits. Yeah, I I never stop at the point of asthma. I will characterize it as saying, uh, so a typical example would be uh, this person has early onset eosinophilic asthma that's uncontrolled on treatment ABC. That's where I want to get to with the consultation. I don't want to say asthma, yes or no. I want to be able to provide some further characterization that can then lead on to the next steps. And Ian, Peter said a spirometry. Do you do reversibility testing? Um, no, I don't, because it's not really been uh, predictive of anything particularly interesting. Um And also, it requires the patient to withhold their bronchodilators, which uh, we, I don't want to encourage patients stopping and starting the treatment. I really want them to consistently take it. So, 
So I, I tend to do that less. Uh, but I, I, like Peter, I am interested in whether the patient has airflow obstruction uh, and whether they have type 2 airway inflammation. And um, yeah, Peter and I were involved in a nice paper that Dom Shaw from Nottingham in the UK wrote um, and was published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine where he he took, and we actually feature this approach in our book, The Asthmas, where you know, we adopt a management approach which is based on assessment of those two things, airflow obstruction and type 2 airway inflammation. So if your patient is symptomatic and has neither of those processes, you know, that uh, one would look elsewhere. <laughs> Uh, you know, is it obesity that's driving their symptoms? Is it uh, uh, breathing pattern disorder? Um, whereas if your patient has isolated type 2 airway inflammation, well, there's a reasonable basis there to start an inhaled steroid. If your patient has both airflow obstruction and type 2 airway inflammation, then a combination inhaler. And if you've got a patient that has just airflow obstruction, then you are, you would sort of focus more on bronchodilators. Uh, and I, I thought that was a nice approach. It looked very simple and doable. Um, and it was very much based on treatable traits and focusing on the two dominant treatable traits. But if neither of those are present, you need to go looking elsewhere. There's something else going on that you need to look for. And so you would identify the breathing pattern disorder or the inducible laryngeal obstruction or the obesity really very early on, not at the end of a fruitless sort of trial of treatment, which is what tends to happen with current symptom-guided management. You know, you keep throwing inhalers at the patient um, and eventually somebody says, well, there must be something else going on here when they've got to high-level treatment and they're no better. Uh, I think that approach, this sort of indiscriminate um, doling out of inhalers, uh, has led to um, patients being somewhat sceptical about treatment, you know, and uh, uh, we're, we tend to blame patients for not taking their treatment when perhaps we should take some responsibility because we're giving treatment in, you know, not, not in a very directed fashion. <laughs> and when you do that, you know, when you treat 100 people with the expectation that only 40 are going to respond, it, that treatment gets a bad name. So, Peter, lung function, is it a predictor for high risk of exacerbation, the level of lung function? Or is it a predictor for your choose of treatment? Uh, so it's definitely a predictor of... Uh, it, it allows you to choose treatment. So if there's airflow obstruction, then that then that's the treatable trait that person has. And so the, the treatment of that is bronchodilators and optimal bronchodilation is Lava-Lama treatment. So that that's pretty straightforward. If it's combined with T2 inflammation, uh, then you'll use a uh, corticosteroid as well. It predicts level of symptoms predicts uh, physical inactivity, so exercise tolerance. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's less helpful than T2 inflammation in predicting exacerbation risk in people with asthma. There is certainly some association 
But interestingly, I don't think that association's been the con- the effect of combined T two inflammation has been separated out. So we don't know if that association's purely reflecting coexisting T two inflammation. I think that's a great comment. And actually, I'd, I'd like to highlight some really interesting work that's being done by Simon Couillard and in Canada. He, he uh, has got data from. I think over 6,000 patients who participated in clinical trials, um, uh, a lot of them with more severe asthma, but not all of them. Uh, So they're across the spectrum of severity. And these are patients that received placebo in the trial. And um, he's investigating predictors of poor outcome, risk predictors, if you like. And I, I think there are two things that you'd like to be able to predict, maybe three things. Firstly, you know, is is my patient at risk of asthma attacks? I really don't want those to happen, particularly the sort of asthma attacks that I could prevent if I was treating the patient. Secondly, are they going to lose lung function over time? And I suppose you're also interested in predicting who might uh, be a struggle to control from a symptom point of view. Um, and Simon has found that these two biomarkers, exhaled nitric oxide and blood eosinophils, are by some way the strongest predictors of risk of exacerbations. So all other things being equal, if you have two patients, one who has a pheno of above 50 and a blood eosinophil count above 300, and the other has a pheno below 25 and a blood eosinophil below 150. Now, in all other respects, these patients are identical. (laughs) They have the same history, the same lung function, the same symptom scores, same treatment, etc. There is a fourfold difference in risk of exacerbations. Now, in children, it's between a six and sevenfold difference in risk. Um, So, these two biomarkers are the two major determinants of risk of attacks. Um, And Crucially, this is modifiable risk. So you know if you treat that person, if they've got mild asthma, if you treat them with an inhaled steroid, if they've got moderate asthma, if you treat them with a higher dose inhaled steroid, if they've got severe asthma, if you treat them with a biologic, that biomarker-associated risk will go away. So this is modifiable risk. So so I think uh, lung function as a predictor of risk has been disappointing in Simon's analysis. Uh, most of the lung function associated risk is mediated by type 2 airway inflammation. But even so, you, you would uh, like us to measure um, lung function. Yeah, but if your patient's got impaired lung function, <laughs> um, you don't know whether that was impaired at birth or whether they've lost accelerated lung function as an adult. Uh, or whether they've got bronchospasm, or whether they've got type 2 airway inflammation with mucus plugging. You know, all, all you know is they've got airflow obstruction. There are multiple potential explanations for that airflow obstruction. Can I just... Yeah, yeah, continue. I think what you're saying, Ian, lung function's important, but it's not enough. Hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what, right. Yeah. What treatable traits and the, the T2, understanding T2 biology has taught us 
is that lung function is important, but by itself, it's not enough. And we have to go on, go the next step mm. and measure yeah. T2 inflammation yeah. and yeah. treat on that basis. We might redefine the perception as new sciences are being presented all the time. Recently at ERS in Milan, a poster was presented by Dr. Yunus Kolak from Copenhagen, Denmark, looking into type 2 inflammation and the association with accelerated lung function decline in individuals with chronic airway disease from the general population. So that that's a really crucial point because as a medical student, we were I was taught that they're all this all part of the same thing. Asthma is just one thing with uh, bronchodilator reversibility, and that allows you to prescribe corticosteroid treatment and life will be great. Well, we know that that is actually totally wrong. And we know that because of your work, Peter, and Freddie's work. And, uh, you know, it was so it was so exciting to be exposed to this work. But, yeah, you know, Gina still recommends that asthma is identified by bronchodilator responsive airflow obstruction, and it actively discourages you from measuring the biomarkers that we think are so important. How are we going to sort this out? <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, I think the GINA guidelines uh, focusing so much on the reversibility instead yeah. of on the biomarkers might do something uh, in the wrong direction. There's an interesting story that I'll share with you. Uh, when we were developing the first biologic, it became clear that the more reversible the patient's airflow obstruction was, the less well they did. But we had to recruit people with bronchodilator responsive airflow obstruction. So we were in an uncomfortable situation where we, in order to get into the study of this agent, you had to have a characteristic which was actually associated with a less good response to treatment, uh, which is completely bananas. And only chess positions can get themselves into a mess like this. Um, so as it, and we are still in that mess. <laughs> And, and I, th I think a real frustration uh, is that we've not been able to move on from this very symptom, lung function, reversibility, focus construct of asthma that, as Peter said, you know, we learned about in medical school. And, uh, you know, we, we've been slow to move away from that. Treatable traits offers a real prospect. It's a, it's a, it's a, a revolutionary change. And, and people, it's a, people find change uncomfortable. I accept that. You know. But uh, nevertheless, it's an important change. I don't know whether you've got comments about guidelines because it's, they seem to have set us in stone rather than allowed us to improve outcomes. I feel, anyway. Peter, do you have anything to say about guidelines? So one thing I will say is that um, the stepwise approach to treatment has has been the, the dominant paradigm for chronic diseases in the 20th century. So that was the case for hypertension, heart failure, diabetes, asthma, COPD. But personalised medicine tells us that we have to move away from that. And that, that's happening in varying degrees. It, uh, Gina has actually moved away from it in severe asthma. So it accepts that stepwise treatment 
doesn't work in severe asthma, and it recommends personalized treatment, identifying T2 inflammation and other traits. The challenge, and I, I agree, I share Ian's frustration, the, the movement is too slow. And, and as a result of that, I believe patients are suffering. So the failure of guidelines to adapt to personalized medicine results in patient suffering. And how do we change that? I don't know, but we must ask the question and point the new direction. And the new direction is personalized medicine using treatable traits. Thank you, Peter and Ian, for a very interesting discussion about assessment and different biomarkers. In the next episode of Treatable Traits, we will discuss the different models of care. Thank you.